This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week we're getting personal right down to the very essence of our being. That's right. I'm talking about DNA, baby. This week, both our storytellers are sharing stories about how their genes, in some way, shape, or form, impacted their life. And from someone who took the 23andMe DNA test way back when, I find it fascinating how a random combination of A, C, Ts, and Gs can play such a big role in who we are as a person. For example... I learned that I have the gene that makes cilantro taste like soap, which is kind of surprising to me because I actually like cilantro. And now I kind of know why when my mom made me wash out my mouth with soap when I swore as a kid, I didn't mind it so much. Weird, right? Anyways, our first story is from Kristen Williams. It was recorded in February this year at a secret location in Seattle. The theme that night was Revelations. I grew up in a small city in North Alabama. The sprawling Tennessee River bordered the northern edge of town and factories lined up along the river. It's the type of place where you can still make a good living driving a forklift and working men took pride in doing just that. Everyone in town knows one another, but I only know half of myself. My mother's side full of spunky, adventurous women who don't always behave. As much as I identify with that profile, I always wondered about my father and his family and what traits I took from them. I tell myself that his intent is not to be absent forever, and one day when the time is right, he'll come find me and we'll catch up. As I get into adulthood, I start to shift my thoughts on my identity from being centered around my immediate family to being more focused on my generic heritage. So I order one of those online DNA tests so I can determine my true African roots. <laughs> I get the little kid in the mail and they have this little vial the size of a baby carrot and I fill the vial up with saliva and some blue juice for stabilization. I shift it off to the lab and I wait. Six weeks later, I get my results and I am from like everywhere in West Africa <laughs> and not enough of one single place to really call my own. Three years pass and I have long ago forgotten about this DNA test 
when I get an email from the company saying that they've matched me with a second cousin, Jan Fletcher. Fletcher is my father's last name, and Jan lives in the town where I grew up. I give it a little thought, and I shoot her a message to introduce myself. A couple days later, I'm at work trying to kick out this report before my next meeting, and all I hear is My phone is blowing up. All Facebook notifications, and I don't even use Facebook like that. Welcome to the family, cuz. Can't wait to meet you. I had been added to the Fletcher family Facebook page. (laughs) To be clear, I did not ask for this. (laughs) Then I see my email where Cousin Jan has invited me for a phone call, and at this point I'm like, do I even have a choice? I'm looking at Cousin Jan's Facebook profile when she calls me, and she has a really big, bright smile and an even bigger, brighter personality. She gives me the rundown of the family history, who's who, the good, the bad, the ugly. (laughs) And then she says to me, I was surprised when you told me your father's name because, well... He's not the type of man that you'd expect to have outside children. And I said, well, (laughs) I told her about that time when I was about four years old and my mama drove me to this place downtown where a nice lady drew blood from my arm and then drew blood from his arm. And because I was a big girl and I didn't cry, he bought me a grape soda out of the Pepsi machine. And then the check started coming in. $34.87 every single week, and then it reduced to every other week and eventually monthly, as I assumed my cut was being split with other outside children. Okay, cousin, well, we're having a family reunion and a barbecue in June, and everybody wants to meet you, so I hope to see you there. Uh... Should I barge in on this man's family event? Well, the DNA said that you're my cousin, and the DNA doesn't lie, so technically it's your family event, too. (laughs) Well, I, I intentionally did not commit in the moment, but Cousin Jan reached out to me a few days before the event and confirmed my attendance. And it felt like life was giving me my own little matrix, blue pill, red pill moment. The blue pill is my assumptions. Maybe he didn't mean to be absent forever. Months just turned into years, years turned into decades, and time just got away from him. But if he met me, he'd love me, and he'd run up to me and embrace me and tell me how much he missed me and that he loved me. And then there's the red pill, the truth. Maybe he never wanted me. My existence to him could be a consequence of his lust and lack of self-control. And he may have reduced me to an 18-year financial obligation that he had long ago paid for. It's possible that in 30 years, not only does he not miss me, that he doesn't love me. 
I chose the red pill and I jumped in my little compact SUV and drove back to that little city in Alabama where I grew up. And the picnic was at the the park that bordered the Tennessee River. I was immediately greeted with hugs and far fewer questions than I expected. Cousin Jan grabbed me by my wrist and pulled me behind this long wooden picnic table. And it was full of big metal pans full of meats and all the trimmings you could imagine. We fixed plates for the elders and then for the children and then for everybody else. I remember thinking to myself, I like these people and it feels like they like me too. (laughs) But then word got to my father's new wife that I wasn't just a random reunion crasher. And she called me over to their table to ask me questions. Awkward. I slowly walked about 50 feet to their table, trying not to make eye contact because this doesn't have to be weird. You know, this is a reunion and at reunions, people reunite, right? And it's been 30 years. He's probably a really nice man. Why wouldn't he be? So there I stood on the other side of a wooden picnic table, staring down at my round face and my heart-shaped lips, my pudgy nose, all on a man who I did not recognize from my few distant memories. But I did not see his eyes because he would not look up at me. And I did not hear his voice because he would not speak to me. And of course I could have said something to him, but I mean, what really what was there to say? It stung. And I had to go about the rest of the day pretending everything was okay. It wasn't. Over the next few months, I sank into a deep, dark valley of grief. And then I got mad at myself for even caring so much. And when I finally got the strength to start clawing my way out of the darkness, a Facebook notification. (laughs) It was from my father's twin brother, and it was a video message that only said four words. Happy birthday, love you. That was followed by text messages and phone calls, not just from my uncle, but from my cousins. They were willing to give me as much love as I was willing to accept. And knowing how much I desperately needed that love, I decided to receive it because, after all, they it wasn't the DNA that made them my family. It was the love. Thank you. That was Kristen Williams. Kristen is a Navy veteran and a senior business manager. She lives in Seattle with her cat, Cammy. Okay, before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. First and foremost, Proton Prom tickets are on sale. 
our annual fundraiser, The Proton Prom, which is on June 1st at the Bell House in New York City, is going to feature an incredible lineup. We got comedian Aparna Nanchalara, anthropologist, primatologist, and comedian Natalia Reagan, award-winning science journalist Nicholas St. Fleur, and famed mathematician Ken Ono, who I recently had the pleasure of meeting over Zoom and was kind of blown away by just how cool his life is. Also, there may or may not be ice cream sandwiches, so please go to storycollider.org and get your tickets today. If you can't make it to Brooklyn for the big night, we're also going to be selling virtual tickets starting on May 15th. And Proton Prom isn't the only show happening. We have so many shows coming up in May. It's wild. I think we have a show in almost every city we're in. So check out storycollider.org slash shows to get information about our upcoming shows in places like New York, D.C., St. Louis, L.A., Chicago, and Toronto. We're also continuing to offer online storytelling workshops for individuals as well as private groups. Registration for June's public workshop is now open, and you can find out more at storycollider.org slash education. And finally... If you are a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. In fact, this month, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can get a discounted ticket to the Proton Prom. We're so grateful for everyone who helps make our work possible. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, our second story today comes from Joanne O'Meara. It was recorded in the before times at the Burdock in Toronto. The theme that night was starting over. It's a gorgeous spring day in 2007. My two-year-old daughter, Hannah, and I are happily playing in the sandbox in our backyard when the phone rings. It's my doctor's office, with results from my prenatal ultrasound last week. It's showing an unusual thickness of tissue at the back of my baby's neck. This could be something serious, like Down syndrome. My heart sinks as I try to hide my reaction from Hannah. My miscarriage several months ago is weighing heavily on my mind. My husband, Carl, and I head down to the genetics clinic at McMaster for follow-up. The next step is CVS, chorionic villus sampling, to check my baby's DNA. As they prep me for the procedure, the ultrasound tech looks at me in dismay. He can't find a heartbeat. I just want to go home, curl up in a ball, and grieve but the scientist in me wants data. So we convince the team to go ahead, even though it's too late for this little one. 
I focus on taking deep breaths while a long, thin needle is inserted into my belly. Silent tears stream down my face. So much for my attempt to switch into detached scientist mode. But it's worth it because the test shows that the baby did have a genetic abnormality. Pieces of chromosome 7 and chromosome 11 were tangled up together, with not enough of one and too much of the other. It's called an unbalanced translocation. This could be a random fluke, or it could be something inherited. So we have our own DNA tested. A few weeks later, we find out it wasn't random. One of us carries a balanced translocation. So instead of having two normal copies of 7 and 11, one of us has one normal copy of each and one piece of 7 with some 11 attached and one piece of 11 with some 7 attached. All of the DNA is there, it's just mixed up. A balanced translocation is perfectly harmless until we try to have children. The problem is the baby could inherit, has a 50-50 chance of inheriting a complete combination of 7-11 or an incomplete combination of 7-11. In other words, we have a 50-50 chance of conceiving a healthy baby or having another miscarriage. Add to that all the other ways a pregnancy can end in miscarriage. And we were facing a coin toss with a coin weighted against us. And as I turn 35, my odds of conceiving are just getting worse with every passing cycle. But Carl and I are very close to our siblings and we desperately wanted Hannah to grow up with a baby brother or sister. We were not ready to give up. With scientific precision, I track all aspects of my cycle. Our life is segmented into 28-day intervals. Intimacy becomes all about timing. Two months later, I conceive again. Standing in the bathroom at 6 a.m. with my pregnancy test in my hand, my reaction is complicated. I should be excited, but every trip to the washroom, every little twinge, and I'm worrying that I've tossed another tails. Would we beat the translocation this time? No, this pregnancy ends at nine weeks. The next one, six weeks. After months of trying to conceive again, my family doctor refers us to a fertility clinic. With their help, I conceive again immediately. But this pregnancy also ends at nine weeks. Miscarriage number five. Three more pregnancies follow. Three more miscarriages. Eight consecutive miscarriages and we are no closer to expanding our family. I am bone weary. Month after month of injecting myself with high doses of fertility drugs. Countless early morning trips back and forth to the fertility clinic in Mississauga. 
not to mention the incredible emotional toll. And I'm about to turn 40. But the ticking clock does have one upside. Our doctor tells us about a new technique that he wants us to try. This could possibly be our way around the translocation. As he steps us through the procedure, I feel like we're starring in a sci-fi drama. Egg retrieval takes place on May 18, 2010. Eight are successfully fertilized. Three days later, a single cell from each embryo is extracted and sent by courier to Livingston, New Jersey to a lab for testing. Each embryo will be checked for the translocation before it's transferred to my uterus. Two days later, we're in the fertility clinic anxiously awaiting the results. The verdict, one out of eight embryos is cleared for transfer. I'm wheeled into a sterile procedure room, covered in a surgical drape, mildly sedated, and our single viable embryo is transferred to my uterus. 10 days later, I go back to the fertility clinic for my pregnancy test. Negative. Round two, my doctor amps up the fertility drugs even more, and this time we fertilize 10 eggs. When we return for transfer, the report comes from across the border. Two are clear. Both are transferred and we wait. Wait and wait. 10 long days, spending every moment of every day wondering if we have finally won the coin toss. I go back for my pregnancy test. This time, it's positive. I should be happier. I should be happier in this moment than any other. The test is positive and we know for sure the baby doesn't have the translocation. What is wrong with me? But even the state of the art approach isn't enough to ease my fears. The heartache of eight consecutive miscarriages has overwhelmed my rational mind. As we move further into the second trimester, I start to allow myself to relax a little. It's now 18 weeks and time for my detailed anatomical ultrasound. At my next visit with my family doctor, she turns the computer monitor to show me the latest development, written in capital letters, Vasa Previa. The blood vessels that connect my baby to the placenta could easily rupture when my water breaks. She's immediately transferring me to the high-risk pregnancy team at McMaster. I will now spend the last six weeks of my pregnancy confined to the prenatal ward at Mac, about 100 kilometers from Carl and Hannah. With vasoprevia, there's no immediate risk to the baby, but spontaneous labor has a high chance of fetal death. Banished to Hamilton, my only responsibility is to keep myself from worrying too much. 
Amazing family and friends come and visit me as often as they can. I pace the halls listening to countless podcasts. My former PhD supervisor wanders across campus once a week for tea in the cafe with me. My mother-in-law prepares a full Christmas dinner and brings it to the ward to share all together as a family. My dad, who's here tonight, would frequently bring me books from the library. I taught myself to knit. My first project, a baby blanket. Monday, February 7th, 2011. We have finally made it to 35 weeks and it's time to deliver my baby before I go into labor. The night before our scheduled C-section is excruciating. One moment, euphoria. The next moment, panic. I'm exhausted before we've even begun our big day. But that exhaustion washes away as we prepare for delivery. Carl is beside me in scrubs. There's a worried anticipation look in his eyes as he squeezes my hand. I try to imagine the nervous smile hiding behind his surgical mask. I manage to hold my emotions together until precisely 11.06 a.m. when the hush in the room is flooded by the sweetest sound of all the unmistakable wail of a newborn baby after taking her first breath. My own wail escapes from me as if in call and response to my beautiful baby girl. Her first name is Mara. Her middle name is Hope. That was Joanne O'Meara. Joanne O'Meara works in the physics department at the University of Guelph and is raising two amazing young women. When she's not teaching or learning about teaching, she's outside enjoying nature, on snowshoes, in a kayak, or just sitting in the sunshine with a good book. The Story Collider is so grateful to Kristen and Joanne for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, with help from me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, education director Nissa Greenberg, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, science advisory fellow Edith Gonzalez, operations manager Lindsay Cooper, and marketing manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Emmy Akikawa and Kent Whipple, and by Jesse Hildebrand and me, Misha Gajewski, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week we'll be back with a Proton Prom special episode featuring the first stories Aparna Nanchalara and Ken Ono shared on our podcast. For now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.